Good morning, it's DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. All right, we got some uh, college football coming up, and uh, Sam Smith, longtime Chicago sports writer, covered the Bulls for the Tribune back in the day in the Michael Jordan era, and uh, now writing for the uh, NBA.com, for Bulls.com. I've talked to him about the last dance, how much stuff they got right and how much they got wrong. And I have read some stories in the last couple of days, and I talked about this at the start of the show a couple of days ago. You know, what other players, teams would you like to see get the last dance treatment? And, you know, it's it's hard to do, but it's easy to do, right? It's hard to shoot all this stuff and get all this access. So you can't go back and do some, there's some things you can't go back and do not to the level they did with the bulls, but there are more and more teams with video departments in the case of the NFL. There is a lot of film that exists from previous decades. The NFL films was way in front of what the NBA was doing and what major league baseball was doing. Now, it's everywhere. And you see players, I mean, Chris Paul, uh, the Clippers have got this documentary out on everything they went through as Sterling lost the team and they were in the playoffs and, you know, Doc Rivers and Chris Paul. I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. I don't know if Blake Griffin participated or not. Some of the other players did. Uh, so that documentary is out. You know, the, the hard knocks thing has been around for a while. And, and locally, uh, both the Jazz and RSL, as well as... Utah and BYU have extensive, you know, video teams and departments shooting stuff. So it's it's very normal now. And, and other schools might. I don't know what Utah State and Weaver State have one way or another. Uh, but I know just because I've interacted with the people. Well, you've all seen BYU TV. And I've interacted with the people with the Jazz, the Utes. And the guy who runs the program up at the U used to work at Channel 2. Um so I'm start, I started thinking, who could you see? Do you win? Are you a celebrity? Do you have an interesting backstory? Most people have an interesting backstory. Some people have a very interesting backstory. I think this most recent Chiefs team could get the last dance story, and it could be great. I think Mahomes' backstory, you know, he's a smaller guy, uh, I mean, he was at a Power 5 school, but he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't Tua at Alabama, right? <laughs> he wasn't that level. And it was a little bit of a surprise, and the Niners really wanted him. And then when you tie, or the Niners, the, uh, the Chiefs really wanted him. When you do what the Bulls did with the last dance, where you take one chapter and you tell the Rodman backstory, you take another chapter, you tell the Pippen backstory, you take another chapter, you tell the Kerr backstory, you know, there's multiple stories. Mahomes as a quarterback is a great story, but let's face it, Andy Reid's got a heck of a story too, right? You can delve into the Philadelphia years, the tragedy with his son. There are multiple things to go into. Some of them have been known and reported. But what if you go all the way back to the BYU days? We know about that. But the fact that this guy who's seen as at the cutting edge of the NFL passing game, the fact that he tracks all the way back to BYU and the Lavelle Edwards, hey, in the other 49 states, most people don't know that. You know, but that'd be interesting. You know, that would be 
interesting to talk to other people, to talk to Robbie Bosco or to Norm Chow and say, you know, the influence of all these guys who passed through the beat, Mike Holmgren, right? People wouldn't automatically link some football fan in Miami or Atlanta or wherever. They're not going to link these stories together automatically. We know them because we're here. So I think there's a lot there. I think the Warriors are right for a documentary. I think there's like three chapters. Steph Curry um, is a celebrity. You know, he's a star. But the Steve Kerr story overlaps with the Bulls, and that's interesting. The Mark Jackson years. I think the Mark Jackson years, the rise and, and Curry overcoming the uh, the surgeries, then the, the championship, the chase in the record, getting the record for regular season wins, but losing in the playoffs – uh, the whole rivalry with LeBron meeting consecutive years, year after year in the finals, which was unprecedented. Uh, Steph with an NCAA tournament run, and there's video of that. His dad played in the NBA. You know, when you start getting these teams that are really successful, and there's multiple storylines, you can start to approximate what The Last Dance did. The problem is, The Last Dance debuted when there was no live sports. Where are you going to find a time to get everybody's attention to see these projects? You know, now ESPN did it. They did it on their 30th anniversary. They launched the 30 for 30. And they told some great stories that were under, you know, weren't told. And The Last Dance is different. It's retelling the story 20 years later that had been told extensively. You know, if you're old enough to remember that era, I was lucky enough to be working here in Utah then. A lot of these stories were known. It was a little behind-the-scenes glimpses that you get. And we all like those. We'd all like that level of access. You know, who wouldn't want to be? There's a reason people pay to sit in the front row. There's a reason people pay more money to sit between the bend and the scores table. You hear what the coach is yelling and you feel the emotion and you get a little bit that, you know, somebody in the upper bowl doesn't get. Somebody watching on TV may not get it. People talk about how vile jazz fans are and the stuff that gets said in the first five rows. A long time ago, one media member from each TV station could sit down in like row three. And so I heard in that era, I heard, but that was years ago. I haven't sat in the first five rows since I don't even know, 2005, maybe 2000. I don't know, somewhere in there. It's been a long time. So people want that kind of access. So I think any of these teams that win, boy, the the Chiefs, the Warriors, um, I I think it's inevitable we're going to see this with LeBron. I think, I mean, LeBron moved to L.A. to be in Hollywood and be in entertainment. He's not going to tell his own story. Oh, we're getting that. We're absolutely getting that. The question is, does enough video exist, enough of the interviews, you know, when the Yankees won four titles in five years from 96 to 2000 and then lost in 2001? That would, that was probably something people would watch. All right, DJ and PK, the Packers. How about a big Packer thing with their multiple quarterback transitions? That'd be awesome. Favre to Rodgers, now the drafting of Jordan Love. All right, DJ and PK, I can dream these stories up nonstop. Someone else is going to have to do them. We're going to take a break. Uh, When we come back, Steve Tate, Hayes Tough Foundation, former Utah safety, as the Utes rebuild their defense. We'll talk with him next. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. 
DJ and PK, Steve Tate joining us right now, the former Utah safety. You know him from the Hayes Tough Foundation. He joins us on the Sprint special guest line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. You can visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. Hey, Steve, good morning. Good morning. You too. What's going on? Uh, we got multiple things going on. I'm curious what you think about the Utah defense rebuilding on the fly. It's awesome that they sent that many guys to the NFL, but that means a lot of guys didn't play. Some were in the program, but some probably weren't. So how quickly is Utah defense going to rebuild? Ooh. You know, I, again, I, I go back to what, what Coach Whittingham's known for, and that's, uh, that's rebuilding defense, reloading every year. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm more confident facing a, a defense that has to reload than, than an offense. Um, Looking at obviously Utah this year, you know, secondary completely wiped out. They've got to replace two guys, three guys uh, that uh, went to the NFL, and you know that's that's hard to replace. But if anything, we know that uh, you know Utah's defense is a system-based defense, and you know guys just tend to to step up and rebuild. And you know I don't think they're going to have quite the athletic caliber that you know you saw last year, um, but. You know, we see it year in and year out. I mean, that that defense is known to put guys in the NFL, and, and a lot of it's because uh, Coach Whittingham puts them in a good place to to succeed. And so, you know, I'm not as I'm not as worried defensively as as perhaps if we had to look at the offense and and, and face a rebuilding situation. If you were coaching right now, Steve, how nervous would you be knowing that you're not having the face-to-face individual contact and the strength people are not with these guys in terms of them being able to come back and be physically where they're supposed to be? You know, I, I think you know the, the fortunate part is everyone's in the same same boat. I mean, no one's getting a competitive advantage uh, if you look across the board and, and certainly in the conference and, you know, right now it's with the entire uh, you know NCAA football in general, but you know I think what what's hard and, and difficult for the coaches right now is is understanding how to balance it and 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 you know learning learning how to to juggle this. Yeah, you know a lot of it's going to come up uh, turn to the individuals, the the players themselves. I mean if they're if they're guys that uh, are, are self disciplined and motivated, then you know you, you won't have too big of an issue. Uh, the one thing I do see though is um, you know defense. I think. When you look at defense, a lot of a lot of it can be done uh, in, in the film room. You know, a lot of uh, you can go over your schemes and, and go over situations in the film room. A lot lots of film work when it comes to defense. Offensively, you know, you need repetition. You need significant repetition. And and you, obviously, right now uh, with with Huntley gone, you're going to face a quarterback coming in, a uh, new quarterback coming in a new system. And that that takes repetition, and and so I'd say that that's right. You know, to me, that's probably where the anxiety comes in a little bit. Is is how do I get you know my quarterback situation figured out with the lack of reps that perhaps uh, they're getting? And so you know a lot of it's going to come down to those those guys trying to learn the system on the fly. Um, but until you can have live reps, you know, you're going to be at a little bit of disadvantage compared to some of these other schools who have a returning quarterback coming back. So you say there's no advantage. I've heard maybe there's a small advantage for the schools in this state because to one degree or another, they all have programs that they send to missionaries who don't have access to anything but need to stay in shape. 
Is that that big an advantage? How good are those programs versus whatever another school in California or Arizona or Texas has to come up with on the fly? How big an advantage is that, or is it pretty nominal? Um, yeah, you know, if it, if this continues on, you know, if this drags on for another month in, in California, which you know, gosh, who knows? It may based on you know what we've seen from from uh, their 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 governor, but I, I don't. If it continues for a month or so, I think you know the the longer that plays out, of course, that the I think the the advantage in, increases for for Utah. Um, you know, that being said. You know things are still kind of slowly opening up here, and and uh, in in terms of you know being able to have larger groups and and get together and and, and working out, and so you know, but the longer that goes, I think yeah, the, the advantage shifts toward towards Utah. But you know, right now, I, I don't think it's the situation. Maybe a minimal advantage um, and, until you know, obviously, we start seeing things here a, a month from now. But yeah, we, we all know it is. It, it's an interesting situation they're all facing. You know, Utah got. I don't know what one week of, of spring ball. I guess you know one week uh, more than than some of those schools. Um, you know, I guess anytime you're on the field, it's a little bit of a, an advantage. But um, you know, uh, again, until we have some certainty with all this and and know if fall camp opens up on time, I think we're all. I think all those teams are are somewhat in the same boat. You think uh, regarding the quarterback situation. You got uh, a redshirt sophomore, I think, in Rising, and then the grad transfer in Bentley, who's got one season, and Rising has got three. Do you think that Bentley has to really knock him out in the competition? Because if it's even, why wouldn't you go with the younger guy? Yeah, you know, it's we're we're in a we're in a different world now when it comes to uh, this eligibility uh, with with transfers and grad transfers and. You know, it seems like you you can rent a quarterback nowadays, and you know it's worked for Oklahoma. Schools now have implemented it. It's it's worked for several of the top programs. Um, you know that quarterback position is so uh, important for a uh, for a program and for an offense to succeed. And if you can get a guy who has proven experience, um, you know, gosh, I look at Bentley and, and a guy who who started in, in you know uh, in the SEC. Uh, multiple years. Through, I think he started three years, a three-year starter in the, in the SEC. I, I just don't. I don't know how he doesn't uh, come in earning that starting spot. Um, no, I, I understand rising. I get that situation as well. Um, but you know, in my opinion, don't you don't bring in a guy like like Bentley, who's as qualified as he is, um, and not play him. Uh, you know, and 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 on that other foot, if I'm Bentley. You know, I, I'm gonna if I'm reevaluating my, reevaluating my situation coming from the SEC, I'm, I'm gonna go to a school who uh, is having a, a, a departing quarterback, knowing that I'm gonna go in and fill that spot for one year and 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 you know show myself. So uh, it's it's tough. Uh, you know, I, again, I'd never want my son to play quarterback. That's for sure. I think that's a, that's a position right now that you know you just there's so many uncertainties in, in that position, and, and obviously it's non-transferable. You can't go play another position. Well, I, I guess you can, but you know, by the time you do, it's probably too little, too late. Um, so, yeah, I think the situation is, you know, rising. If he's on the same level, if I'm a coaching staff, I'm certainly looking for the future. Uh, that being said, you know, uh, experience carries its weight, and, and Bentley has experience, and he's got it at the top, you know, at the top level. How big is your son? <laughs> he just he just surpassed me in in both uh, height and weight. So he's he's now on six foot one seventy five. 14, he just turned 14, so. Well, 
He's not going to be playing. Uh, he's no safety. He's more linebacker, uh, <laughs> linebacker DN type. Or Ben Roethlisberger. Or Ben, <laughs> ben Roethlisberger as well. <laughs> so let me get this straight, Steve. You're saying that Bentley will be better than Joe Barrow. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. That's what I'm oh, oh, man. PK. I, I expected nothing less. That's exact. Put a, put a quotation in that right now. He will be better than Joe Burrow. I thought that's what I heard. <laughs> that's exactly what you heard. So the position group that uh, has historically needed the most help, and I have to say, after years of looking at them you know, with one eyebrow raised, thinking, you don't have it, they've been getting better. They need to get better, but they have been improving. What kind of step forward do you think the receiver group takes? And you can lump tight ends in that or not. That's your choice. Judgment call on your point, on your part. Yeah, um, I think we we have we have been seeing that that receiving core progressively getting better. I think last year, um, gosh, you know, the surprise was the tight end position, and uh, and and that is a huge weapon. Uh, that I think that in itself. Gives you one one other option uh, on the offense. I've always said that tight end position is probably one of the more underutilized in college football. Um, if you have a tight end that's athletic, it's a mismatch for linebackers. Um, if he's big, it's a mismatch for safeties. I, I've always said that that linebacker or that that tight end position is is undervalued, underutilized. And Utah last year had just a unbelievable. Um, uh, you know, experience with 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 the with the tight end group, and I think that carries over. Um, I think getting getting Britton back is, is big. Uh, you know, he he was a guy. Needless to say, uh, just shifty gives gives you an, uh, a different element in that slot position. And then you know, ultimately, got to stretch the field. And uh, you know, so that that third option just stretching that field. But you know, I think I think that tight end position's locked down, and and that helped. I mean, that opened up Utah's offense more so than I've ever seen. Probably since you know, arguably since 2008 um, was the last time I've seen kind of an offense run um, like that, and I think a lot of it's because of that tight end position. Of course, Huntley and, and Moss helped out. You know, that, that doesn't hurt having those guys there as well. But you know, I think one thing that uh, that certainly can be pinpointed was was tight ends, man. That that that's just a, a unique position, and I think that's going to help uh, whoever that quarterback is coming in uh, having that. It, it's you know that tight end. It, it, the nice thing about that tight end position, it's it's high percentage passes, and I think that goes along with Coach Whittingham his his kind of philosophy. You know, he he doesn't want to turn that ball over. And when you have a tight end, you know, you're you're, you're talking about high percentage uh, passing passing game, and uh, you're not taking huge risks. Um, you're getting the ball out quick, and, and so um, you know, then you're getting a guy who can who can then take it and 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 do some some incredible things after the catch. So, um, yeah, I think it's it it's needless to say, it's gotten much better than, than what we've seen in years past. Consistency in coaching obviously has been critical to Utah's success. I think I'd have to double-check this, but I think since they've joined the Pac-12, Utah's had one coach, and the other five teams in the South, I think it's like 17 or 18 if you add up all the coaches. And so you can see where all that coaching instability has led to a lack of success, and where at Utah the coaching stability has led directly to a lot of the success that they have. And Kyle's, you know, he'll be 61 this season, and he's spoken how he doesn't want to be coaching uh, well into his 60s unless he changes his mind. That's what he's literally, he's literally said that publicly. So my thought for you 
is you know Scally very well, probably as well as anybody, and it seems like you know he got that raise. And I asked him after he got the raise, "Are you coaching waiting?" And he said he didn't want to comment. But do you think that that is the natural transition to make? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think you know, I, I think when you look at programs, um, you know, Utah's a good example. Obviously, Urban, uh, you know, from Urban then to Coach Whittingham. And then whoever, obviously, Scout would probably be next in line. Um, but, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use probably, for lack of a better uh, example, Boise State. You know, Boise State, uh, I know we don't love, probably a lot of Utah fans don't love uh, comparing a program to, to Boise State. But let's be honest, I mean, Boise State has been a program that has been notoriously uh, rebuilt every year without really taking a step back. And a lot of what they've done, in inside that program is built within they built within they brought back guys that know uh they know the recruiting they they understand kind of the the advantages the disadvantages uh they understand the program they understand the administration um and and that in itself allows a quicker rebuild without taking a step back and um you know when i look at utah you know i think following that same mold would be advantageous i think i think morgan scally's a guy who knows he grew up here he obviously is a player a guy i played with um g8 uh has has been kind of growing with the program and understands it and the nuances that are with it understands obviously the the mission component understands uh the recruiting elements that are are you know that you need to consider um it, it was very for for urban to do what he did took a guy like Urban to do that, to come in in two years, to understand a program that quickly and turn it around in two years. Only a guy like Urban can do that. That's, that's an anomaly. I mean, I think with the, that's what we've seen in the Pac-12. Everyone's hoping for an Urban situation, and that's why they're going in kind of the revolving door with coaches in the Pac-12 is hoping that they can land a guy like Urban that can turn things around and, and create a powerhouse overnight. But that's just not the likelihood. That's just not, 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 that's not happening. Very, very seldom are you going to get a situation like that. Typically, You've got to build within that program um, guys that, have, that are familiar with it. So, you know, I think Coach Scally obviously is a, is a guy that's, that's, that's going to get probably the first option. You know, I think, uh, I think a guy like Coach Anderson, if, if he is interested, is obviously going to get a, a look as well. He's a guy that knows the program, knows the recruiting, knows the coaches, high school coaches here locally. Um, so, yeah, I think those two guys are certainly – if I were a betting man, I'd say you know the the nod goes to one of those two guys. And so when you look around the Pac-12, especially the Pac-12 South, and you see all this turnover that PK's talking about, not that anybody's Urban Meyer because nobody's Urban, but is there anybody you think is more equipped? Somebody's got to win all these games head to head. Who's most equipped to take advantage of this, uh, other than other than Utah with Kyle's consistency? Ooh, you know I. That's a, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I haven't seen enough from – I think the, the situation in, at ASU is unique. Um, you know, I think bringing guys that have NFL experience, although, you know, coaching in the NFL is so much different than coaching in college. So that, that's a situation I'm obviously watching closely and seeing how that experiment pans out. And if it does, obviously I think they'll get top-notch players. But I think it's so much more than that uh, with Herm Edwards there. I, I, you know, I think I think USC has got its own issues. Um, you know, I just think they 
right now they're trying to they're trying to figure out if this coaching situation is is really one that's going to last and if it's if it's more something higher up than the, than just a head coach you know maybe it's a program issue i think usc certainly um you know they've got the talent but you know they're they're lacking consistency and i think obviously consistent in, in the head coach um you know i think if you were to look at the Pac-12 South, I think it's it's certainly Utah's. Uh, in my opinion, it, it's still theirs to to be taken. You know, if I look right now elsewhere, obviously I'd, I'd point to Oregon. I think Oregon last year showed that it's still one of those top programs. It's still, you know, it, that coaching staff uh, rebuilt pretty quickly. So you know, in the Pac-12, I'd say Oregon, but certainly in in the Pac-12 South, I don't think there's anybody else better positioned than Utah. You think Urban is done coaching? You think he come back? Oh man! You know, I, I, I think, I think he comes back. I don't know how quickly though. You know, I think Shelly and and I've gotten to know Shelly pretty um, closely over the last couple of years. She's helped a lot with foundation along with Urban. I, I think they they love the position position they're in. You know, Urban's son now walking on it uh, at Cincinnati. You know, I think what one of the biggest misconceptions of urban if you don't know him if you if you don't know him personally or been coached under him you know, i think people think that he's he's uh just this guy who who you know uh he, he had his ego is bigger than than any program and and the reality is you know urban's still pretty grounded when it comes to family i mean i i see him wanting to watch his son at cincinnati i see him wanting to be there um, and as soon as that situation clears up and his son graduates, uh, and you know, I, I, that's when I see him making a move. But right now, you know, Urban is a, really a family-oriented guy. I mean, if you if you follow him and follow his wife, they're, it's, you know, it's all about their kids and their grandkids. And I think there's a big uh, component of Urban that wants that and wants to experience that before he jumps into a new head coaching position. So I don't think it's going to be within the next you know, three years. I think it, I, I do think he'll coach again, but not not till after uh, his son done playing football. All right, hey Steve, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for coming on. Always fun, guys. Good talking to you. There's Steve Tate, Hayes Tough Foundation, and the former Ute safety. When we come back, Sam Smith, longtime Chicago Bulls writer, first for the Tribune, now for the Bulls.com, NBA.com. Sam Smith, next. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. It is time now to talk with Sam Smith. You can read his stuff online, nba.com slash bulls. I've been going through the whole archive. He's got tons of stuff about the bulls and has written extensively about not just the last dance, but really the whole era. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for doing this. Uh, Sure. Good to talk to you. Although... Although I, I know what you're talking about, and those were tough times for Salt Lake City. Yeah, they were. It's uh, you know, it's 
It's <laughs> show business, right? There's got to be a winner and there's got to be a loser, and you gotta, you gotta, you gotta risk it for the biscuit and get in there and uh, get your heart broken sometimes. I'm curious because this story overlaps with Salt Lake so many times, and when I was reading through your online archive of all the stories, uh, you tell one story. It's a great story, actually, about how. The year Jordan is drafted, they send a 23-year-old guy from the ticket office to actually execute the draft, right? Most teams are sending GMs and coaches in there. And you say in there that although the Bulls wanted Jordan, that there was pressure from the outside to draft other people, including Mel Turpin, Dinner Bell Mel, who famously played for the Jazz. Was there any thought the Bulls might crack under the pressure, or were they 100% going to take Jordan if he was available? Uh, yeah, they, I mean, to Rod Thorne's credit, he made some he made some <laughs> poor draft choices before that. Um, but he but he was uh, at that point, um, you know, committed to uh, selecting Jordan. Now, although it was, you know, you got to consider the times. You know, the notion back then was that you, you, you know you're never going to win a title uh, led by a shooting guard. And so Rod, you know, Rod's point in that respect was well. We're not drafting Michael Jordan to be the focus or the center of the team. You know, we're drafting him to be just a good shooting guard, and we know we have other needs and that kind of thing. But you know, people in, in, in this era really won't. I mean, you, you know, you know, if you look at the, at the history of the NBA, it was always built around great centers. You know, from Russell, Wilt, uh, Kareem on down, and, and, and in that era too. You know, you, 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 top teams. You had, you know, Parrish with the Celtics. You had Kareem with the Lakers. You had Mo. Is, you know, the Sixers can't win with Dr. J uh, and all the great team, the guys they had. They had, uh, you know, McGinnis and Dawkins, that Collins was an all-star. They still can't win until they get Moses. So there was a lot of sentiment in the Chicago community. And you got to have a big man. And, you know, Turpin, I think he went six in that draft. He, he went pretty much yeah. after this. I think it was Sam Perkins, Barkley, and Turpin. You know, and so there was, there was sentiment for both Perkins and uh, 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 Turpin, in, in you know, in that in that draft among the community, I know, I know the Bulls were getting a lot of fan advice, as it were. Uh, so it wasn't really universal at the time that oh, wow, we fell into Jordan and now we're on the way. And it wasn't anything like that. So, because you were there for the whole ride, and because whether you're writing and you're limited for space back in the newspaper days, not so much online now, or you're limited for time, because even with a 10-hour documentary, the folks who have done this said, and they wish they have more stories they couldn't tell. Of all the stories you know, what are some of the stories that you wish had been in the documentary that, the, that everyone around the country could have uh, picked up on? Yeah, I think I think the documentary, you know, did a good idea, a good a good job of covering, you know, the, the basic, you know, all the questions that had to be asked, kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, it, it, like I, I have said, is it reminds me a little bit in, in cases of, you know, you see a movie come on on uh, on TV or a movie, and they'll say, well, based based on a true story or based on actual events. <laughs> and, you know, it was a lot of that, you know, but it, but it was supposed to be that. And, and there's some criticism that, um, well, it's not a, a pure documentary of this and that. It's Michael Jordan, you know, it's Michael Jordan's hagiography, and it is. And that's what it's supposed to be. And and, and that's, I think, I think that's the point of you know, the, the, what, what's made it so special with so many people is that, you know, here's this guy that's, 
you know, sort of uh, mythical figure almost, um, who's really been a recluse for the last, you know, you know, twenty years or so. Uh, maybe even more than that. You know, he was in, in basketball. You know, once he came back in the mid nineties, his celebrity was so huge, you know, that you really never got to see, uh, you know, him relaxed or how he actually was. And you know, so this was sort of a uh, revealing about that. I mean, there are so many things that that occur over the. You know that you that 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 you're not going to include, and if I you know if I gave it a, a lot of thought, uh, you know you would co- you would come up with, well that would be that would be a, you know a fun behind the scenes compared to this, but you know what they had, I think the basis of it was they had uh, an, an a, a, a NBA uh, entertainment crew was embedded that season. Actually, I thought there would be more stuff from that um, than there was. You know, I think the, the the bulk of the documentary was a lot of interviews, and especially the interviews with Jordan, which I, you know, which I think, you know, for the most part, people uh, enjoyed the most. Um, but that crew was around that whole season, so you know, it was ninety seven, ninety eight. It was an element of the uh, of behind the scenes where. You know, if you went back and it throughout the whole decade, you know, you could imagine how many, you know, great or unusual or, uh, you know, appealing scenes would be, be, you know, behind the, you know, behind the curtain. But that's sort of what I tried to do, sort of innocently. You know, when I wrote this book in the early '90s, uh, the Jordan Rules, uh, before the Bulls had won anything, it was just sort of a, you know, sort of an innocent, an innocent attempt to peel back the curtain a little bit for fans to say, hey. Do, and this is what it's like kind of to go through a season with a team. Um, and then it, it turned out I picked the season where they went and won. But at a time where, you know, the notion, it was like the Jazz, you know, people weren't expecting the Bulls to win in the late 80s because they couldn't get, you know, they couldn't get past the Pistons, much like, you know, the Jazz had so many years they couldn't get past the Lakers. And, you know, until you actually get there, no one really thinks you can. So as you uh, as you watch all of this unfold, I think the one of the things that really stayed with people in this was iPad Mike is how I've seen it referred to on social media. When they hand him the iPad to show him something that somebody else said, is that a side of Jordan that you saw very often covering the team? iPad Mike. Well, of course, we didn't know what an iPad was. Sure, right, yes. Or or iPhone or or any of those things. You know, what what struck me about that, yes, it it was definitely a side of him in the sense, you know, a big side of him was at the point. And and that's sort of how you had fun with him and how he sort of divided, you know, sort of the group into the tough guys. And not, you you had a fence back at him uh, verbally, not so much always physically all the time, even though he had a couple of these incidents with, you know, Steve Kerr or Will Purdue. He wasn't a fighter, particularly you saw. There was that one thing they showed with Reggie Miller where they were sort of slapping at each other. <laughs> you know, was, was, but, you know, well, we don't encourage fighting other than uh, since the Pistons uh, moved up the sea. Um, but, yeah, it was, it, 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 and I think that, that gave, uh, you know, the greatest, some of the greatest insights in the documentary to Jordan, you know, that, Whatever you challenge him about, I mean, really, it's, it's probably a, a psychological weakness that he that he was unable to accept anybody saying anybody else could do anything better. You know, it was like the you know the thing with Carl Malone. 
where he said, well, I was motivated because Carl Malone was the MVP. Well, the MVP doesn't mean the best player in the league. The MVP means the, you know, the most valuable to your team at that time. And you know, there's no reason to, to not think at that time Carl Malone could have been more valuable to the Jazz than even Michael Jordan was to the Bulls. But you know, this notion, or you know, like with Clyde Drexler, how dare they say Clyde Drexler is good as me? <laughs> you know, those sort of things were. You know, I mean, in some sense, it's kind of a weakness. It's like, hey, get over yourself a little bit. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's possible that somebody else one day could have done something. <laughs> better than you. So, but, but that was the nature of Jordan. It, was, I, I, it wasn't so much to me that you know, he believed that all the time, is that, that that sort of was his competitive nature, you know, the challenge to drive him. You know, you know he lost plenty. I mean, missed a lot, of, a lot of big shots. I mean, anything else he did, you know, golf or whatever, golf, you know, even they showed you pitching quarters he lost. <laughs> you know, so he'd lose, you know, plenty of stuff. But it's also the thing I admired about him in a lot of respects because – you know, he he was willing to take the challenge and everything. Like you see LeBron, you know he won't. You know, the, the, and a lot of players in this era, Kevin Durant, uh, you know they don't go in the contest. They won't go in a dunk contest. So the, uh, there's three point at the All Star game, which are just for entertainment. It's not an ultimate statement that okay, well you you're not the best dunker ever or something. You know, it's just taking a chance and challenging yourself against the others. And Jordan always did that. He wasn't a good shooter, but he went in the three-point contest, and he got the lowest score in the history of the contest. You know, but it's not like it affected his legacy. But, you know, you see players in this era are afraid to, a lot of them, not all of them, but you know, a lot of them are afraid to fail uh, or afraid to, you know, face humiliation or question. And he never was, you know. Uh, and I think probably that comes out a little more that, you know, anybody dare challenge him in anything. And now, you know, of course, at his age, what is whatever what is 63 so 57 is he 57 i think you know at, at his age it's easy you know we all look back and we go we walk by the park and go oh yeah i could have beaten that kid you know when i was little so you know he still kind of lives that way sam smith joining us he's covered the bulls for years covered uh, jordan's incredible run and i'm curious uh, we saw him. Uh, we saw him go after some awfully good players, from Isaiah to Drexler uh, to Peyton. Of all the players of that era, who do you really think he respected the most? I mean, he thought he was the best. Did he think there was a clear cut number two, someone who came closest to challenging the throne? I don't. I don't think he did. I don't think he really did. Um, you know, because you know, I mean, the Pistons. And I think that's why you see a lot of resentment toward the Pistons, not only because, uh, you know, however they, you know, they, they acted, you know, the, the tough play, the bad boy stuff. They beat them. You know, they beat them so many times. I mean, Isaiah, you know, beat him in the playoffs way more than Jordan ever beat Isaiah in the playoffs. And I don't think anyone else could ever, you know, could say that. And, of course, once Jordan started winning, you know, they, he, you know, he won every time he got to the finals. You know, but building up those years, he liked Bird. You know, he never had issues with Bird. He, and and you know, Bird, I mean, wasn't an athletic kind of guy. He he resented Magic early on, and they, they ended up becoming friends. Um, but you know, those two, while they were great winners, they 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 weren't great athletes, and you know, he couldn't compare. I mean, I mean, you know, if they went one on one on the court, you know, maybe the other players, and that was the criticism of Michael in that era. You know that. You're not as good as, as Bird and Magic because they make others better and they're better teammates. Um, but but you know he didn't 
he 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 wasn't so much. Uh, I mean, he was maybe you know, say jealous, you know, of Magic's success or just less less of Bird. He never had it, and he saw him do the commercials with Bird. He never did the commercials with anybody else. You know, he did that. I don't know if you remember, you're old enough, you remember the famous where they were taking shots all yeah. over the gym kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, great commercial years ago. Uh, but Isaiah really, Isaiah was great. I mean, Isaiah, as a player, yeah, people, people don't credit in a lot of respects. And you, you guys in Utah know Isaiah from the Carl Malone shot. Yeah. The guy really, really killed him almost. I mean, he gave him 40 stitches or something. Uh, you know, when Isaiah used to go after Stockton so much. Um, but I think that it wasn't so much he, – he didn't feel athletically uh, that there was anyone who could challenge him that way. But, uh, but he yeah, – and I think you see the resentment still come out after all these years. He's still angry with Isaiah uh, because Isaiah, you know, made him look bad, made his team look bad in several playoffs. And Isaiah is a Chicago native and, uh, you know, and so, so in a sense you could say that's the, the one guy who really got under his skin. So uh, a lot of this has uh, brought people back to addressing uh, Jordan versus LeBron. Uh, as someone who saw Jordan all the way through his career, do you come down on the side of Jordan, or do you think LeBron's actually gotten to GOAT status? No, no. Of course. I mean, just what I just said, you know. Yeah. I mean, you disqualify yourself. LeBron, I mean, LeBron's a great player. I mean, it pains me to criticize LeBron in any way. I mean, he's been a great ambassador of the league. I, I I I like him. I don't know him well, you know, but I like him personally. I like what he stands for. Uh, I will, you know, I, I think he, his play has been fabulous. But, but there's really no comparison as far as as a player. I mean, you know, Le, uh, LeBron. I mean, he sort of disqualified himself in some of the things that happened. You know, he he lost in the finals to like the worst champion ever. <laughs> you know, Dallas Dallas team that won in 2011. Look at that roster. It's really almost unbelievable that that team was a champion. Like Dirk and a bunch of washed-up guys, you know, Jason Kidd. And, and they were, I think they were starting to Sean Stevenson. They had this miserable team. Um, and then, you know, he's given up. He's, he gives up on games sometimes. And I remember in the, what was it, the 2010 when they lost to Boston and I think it was the, it was the conference finals. Before he went to Miami, kind of gave up on some games there. And it's very human emotion, you know, to be so discouraged and disheartened, um, you know, that you sort of walk away from it. Um, and then, you know, look, LeBron was in the finals nine times, and he lost six of them. <laughs> so the only ones who lost that level, and they're great players, is Weston Taylor. But, you know, but they're not top five for that reason. You know, you can't go to the ultimate game and lose it all the time and then be considered the greatest player ever. So, you know, LeBron's got great longevity. He's going to probably, you know, we get back to basketball on some regular level. He's probably going to pass Kareem and be the all-time leading scorer of all time. Um, and he's certainly one of the great players. But I, I don't think he can even compare him to Jordan, you know, with the way Jordan dominated his year and dominated teams and dominated players. I mean, every time he went to the finals, he was the MVP. He's the best player on the floor, and I don't think you could ever say that about LeBron. So you can't be the best player of all time if you were so often not the best player in the game. 
Sam Smith joining us. And Sam, you mentioned earlier, you know, so much of the Jordan story brings so much uh, pain to jazz fans. And part of the Jordan story is Phil Jackson. Of course, Phil doubled back with the Lakers and beat the Jazz in the playoffs three times during the Carlos Boozer, Darren Williams era here. And I was really struck watching the last dance. Doug Collins tiptoed up to, uh, I got stabbed in the back and pushed out. But he didn't, he didn't say it, but he gets kind of say he saw it coming. The, was there at any point a chance as that was happening that Phil's career wasn't going to get this incredible launching pad and take off the way it did? Was it kind of in, inevitable the way Phil was embracing the triangle and text that he was going to be the head coach one day? What played out there? Because it just felt like they addressed it and yet they left some stuff unspoken. Yeah, well, I think there's no question. <laughs> I think Doug more than tipped I think they did you know, pretty clear without saying it that you know, he felt he was undermined there. And I, I don't think that's the case, but it's certainly understandable, you know, that you would feel that way. You know, Phil was hired by Krause, by the general manager, not by Doug, to be on his staff, which is not that usual. You know, but Tex was hired by Krause, too. You know, Doug only got the hire. Of course, you know, there wasn't big staffs back then. Um, you know, having, having three assistants, what they did was kind of a lot to that era. You know, they were sort of ahead of the curve a little bit. Um but no, there was no inevitability that way. And, and, and you know, and Phil didn't come. He was hired, and, and that was sort of the genesis of uh, uh, Krause's bitter feelings, which were uh, inappropriate in a sense. You know, you can't tell someone not to feel bad. But he felt he saved Phil from the CBA, and, and Phil wasn't going to get a job in the NBA. Phil was viewed as a, you know, as a, uh, as an erratic kind of character. He, He'd written a book in the 70s with the Knicks, Maverick, where he talked about drug use and things like that. And, you know, was, was viewed a little out of the conservative mainstream of the NBA, uh, executive coaching, you know, order at that time. And, 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 and you know, Phil acknowledged that. You know, Krauss, Krauss did bring him and give an opportunity when he might not have otherwise got one. But, you know, Krauss's view later, you know, for the next rest of your life is that you owe him. <laughs> You got to be like a subject, and you know Phil, and he did. He paid him back. He knew he did his job. He won titles, but Phil wasn't this triangle advocate when he came to the Bulls as an assistant for two years under Doug. Uh, but the triangle is very similar to a lot of the tenants that Phil played under Red Holtzman with. So it was sort of the philosophy of it, of you know, spacing on the floor, movement, ball movement, man movement. You know, it's basic, a lot of basic basketball to it. It's just not the isolation that you see a lot uh, in the NBA over the years. Um, you know, it's, it's just more of a fundamental of a team game. But even on the staff, and I remember talking to Phil about it and even helping him. I, I, knew, I knew some owners and helped him arrange some interviews. But he'd interviewed when he was on the staff of the Bulls. Uh, he interviewed for some other job. And, and he was very excited about the possibility of getting the head coaching job of the expansion Minnesota Timberwolves. And he and Bill Musselman were up for that, and Musselman got the job. You know, so if Phil had gotten that job, which he was trying desperately to get, because he, he, he wasn't thinking he was going to inevitably face, replace Doug Collins and be the Bulls coach. Life is very different. Well, Phil doesn't have, you know, 11 titles or whatever he's got. He's not, you know, if you start with an expansion team and take all those losses for a couple of years, I'm pretty sure he'd have been out of coaching, you know, within four or five years and out of the NBA. So, you know, but for all of us, it's, it's the right time, you know, you've got to be at the right time in the right place. 
Um, I happen to be fortunate enough in you know in my career as a sports writer, you know, when I was in sports, to have showed up, and Michael Jordan showed up with the Chicago Bulls. You know, if I was in Sacramento, I probably would enjoy the winners more, but I wouldn't like I wouldn't be on your show. <laughs> and so, you know, things in life are a lot of good fortune more than. Uh, you know, personal excellence, being at the right place at the right time, and, and Phil was. But then you've got then you've got to be somebody to, to prove and produce. And I think what the documentary showed, more as much as anything, is how great a coach Phil really was in dealing with that incredible group of diverse personalities and Michael Jordan and Rodman and Pippen and all the things and keeping it together. That. But it's just not rolling the ball out when you got great players. It's a lot more than that, and I think that's what you know that what Phil was. But you can't show that if you don't have the good players. Well, timing is everything. There's no doubt about that. And Sam, we appreciate you spending some time with us. Thanks for coming on the air and uh, talking a little bit about Jordan and the Bulls. All right, good to talk to you. There's Sam Smith. Been right in the NBA forever. Like he says, timing is everything. And, man, he had the right timing. He was in Chicago and watched the whole Bulls saga play out. And man, you look at the Bulls before and you look at the Bulls after. You know, there was a, there was a glorious decade there. But other than that, yeah. All right, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. All the headlines. What is trending? Next. What is trending? Next.